We're going to continue going through Ephesians. And we're going to land in chapter 5 today, which means we're getting closer to my favorite part of Ephesians, which is in chapter 6. But we're in chapter 5, and we, it feels like we've, we've actually gone, uh, we've been prepared for what we're going to do every step of the way. I don't know if you, you get this, but it seems like each week we go through another chunk and it's like God prepares us for the next thing. It's like he's already been getting us ready for this. And I believe that's the case today. And I think that each one of us will have something right here in God's word in this text that will speak to us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. The title of the message today is Expectations of an Illustrated Faith. So I'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to remind you how we got here. If you'll remember early on, we learned, especially in chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith. And then this grace is for Jews and Gentiles. It's not just for the exclusive group that it had been all along to bring us the Messiah. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's not just for, let me, let me put it into context for us, it's not just for Christians, this grace, just because you're raised in a Christian home doesn't mean it's more for you. It's also for those who know nothing about Christianity, for those people who don't get it, for those people that, that bother us when they come up with things that seem so foreign to the way we think because they are so far away from Christianity. For instance, if you talk to someone about your faith, and this other person has no faith in Christ, if you start to mention about your desire is to please the Lord, I don't know if you've run into this, but you will if you speak to non-believers. There are some that are extremely repulsed by such a thought because they have been inundated and raised in a world that is increasingly selfish. Everybody's supposed to be selfish. And the, the, the better you are at being selfish, the more you succeed. That's the way they think. And so the idea of trying to please some entity that they can't imagine is real repulses them. And God's grace is for them too. You know this. Well, he's reminding us of this. So we're saved by grace through faith. And this grace is for Jews and Gentiles. And then we're told to be gracious, you used to be like them. Those people that are repulsed by Christianity, you might say, well, I was never like that. Yeah, but you were once lost. One of our issues is we don't focus on the saved part by remembering how lost we were without Christ, how filthy we were without His saving grace. And that's crucial to understanding the gospel. And 
Paul is emphasizing this. Then he says, you are no longer to behave like them. Maybe you'll remember that chart from last week. You'll see it behind me, but I changed it. The part that I changed, I'll have it underlined right now. Do it. Remember I said, think it, feel it, going clockwise, think it, feel it, say it. Think it, feel it, do it. It's the same thing, except it's all behaviors, not just your speech. So think it, feel it, do it. So he wants us to think unlike them so that we behave differently. So you look at this slide I already showed you again, and now you can see why he starts with therefore in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore. All of that, therefore. Be imitators of God as beloved children. God loves you. You are his children. He is our father. You're supposed to mimic him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but that's the way children are. They do what their parents do. Good children follow the good that their parents do, and our father has only good, so imitate him. Walk in love. That's what he wants us to do. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, and this, here's the description of what that's like. So Christ, who didn't have to, but he chose to, give himself up for us. The description here, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What this does to people in the first century is it brings to mind two things especially, and that is oils and perfumes. This brings to mind value, not just because they're, some of them are extre- extremely expensive, but the extraordinary sense that they have and their medicinal purposes, especially with the oils. So there's a lot of value in the oils and the scents. And some of you, you like to engage your senses. You, you like to have these different smells. Some, for some of you, it's lavender. For others, you hate lavender. <laughs> but there's just different scents that you love. And the first century Christians would be reminded that the sacrifices that would be given oftentimes would have value and would be so pleasing to God. That's what this is about, a fragrant offering, something that the Lord is pleased with. That's what Christ did, and we're supposed to walk like that. We're supposed to live in such a way that the Lord is just, when, when he thinks of us, he's thinking, oh, yes. And you might feel that sometime here in the church. If you're walking in love, what this feels like when you're trying to please the Lord and you're, you're trying to walk in love, the way this translates sometimes, as the Lord sees you doing this, you get some of these blessings as well. For instance, you see a fellow brother or sister in Christ right here in the church building or coming from the parking lot or crossing buildings or whatever, and then you've got that same sense. Oh, I love that person. That's the way God thinks. You're, you're walking in love, and you're getting a sense of that fellowship that He wants us to have, and that's a cool thing. Verse 3, But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. 
Saints, that's just another word for Christians. And he's, he's saying this not in a way that we're supposed to arrogantly think that we're better than other people, but our behavior is supposed to be. Christians, we are above that. Back up a little bit. But sexual immorality. This is the sin that's listed as the only one that's done in the body. And if you don't understand that visual that we're given, I want you to go back to the thought of the temple and that your body is the temple. You as a Christian host the power and glory of God. And every time, remember we talked about last week, don't grieve the spirit. Every time you commit a sexual sin, you are dragging God through that. You realize how horrible that is? You are the host of the power and glory of God, Christian. Don't do that. You, you're above that. You've committed to Christ. You've accepted His gift of grace. So live like it. I don't know if you're catching what's going on here with what Paul's doing, but he's purposely going through and giving us a an emphasis, an exclamation point of behaviors. He's taking it to this point, taking us to this point. You don't think like that. Don't behave like that. And here's some specifics. So we're going to go through. This is just the start. Did we lose my mic? Is that what happened? What's that? Screw the wire into the transmitter. I'm back. It's all the way in. You want to try to, this is what you're talking about? That's what I'm talking about. This goes down. It's going to be screwed. Screw that. I can my fingers All up. right. Thank you, sir. Well, it's not, not doing anything but spinning. You can still hear me or not? Okay, I can yell if I need to. We can turn this into a charismatic church in one preaching. There you go. All right. Thank you. I appreciate the help. So he's putting an exclamation point on this sexual piece. And the preacher just keeps bringing it up. He's like, I thought after that microphone thing, he's just going to move on. But here he goes again. He's right back at it. But you know what? I'm not the only one that's going to do that. Because in our text, it's going to come back up again. He's not done. He just brought this up. And God, in his amazing sovereignty and providence, he has delivered us a message that is perfect for today. Because in the world in which we live, have you heard? I don't know if you've heard. There's a thing out there called the dark web. You heard about this? That's like it's shielded from most of the rest of us that don't know how to get on it. You don't want on it anyway because it's really bad stuff. But let me suggest to you that the Internet itself is kind of, is, is, I would call it the dark web. I mean, it's just mostly dark stuff. Most of us, even if we only do social media, and if you're like me, I do social media. I've got friends in different countries that cost a lot of money to call, so we just social media, and I don't want to lose contact. But I'm telling you, if you do much of it, it could take you down. It's, it's dark stuff out there. And people, little kids have smartphones. People have access to things that we ought not to be thinking about or looking at. And it's pretty easy to, these days to get away 
with looking at things that God would not have us look at. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? And here we are in a first century document delivered to us today as we're walking through Scripture, and it says, but sexual immorality is not supposed to be part of us, Christians. We're above that. So if you're one that has been dabbling in that sort of thing, and by the way, it's a, if you look at the statistics, there is, it's very likely that some in this room are dealing with that. They're doing it. And, and the fact that I'm talking about it, they're probably thinking that their spouse or somebody that knows them has called me and talked to me. No, I don't. I don't know about anybody in this room doing this. I really don't. But more than likely, somebody is. More than likely, more than one of us. But Christians, we're above that. It doesn't just talk about sexual immorality. It says all impurity. Anything else that would contaminate a Christian, don't do it. Don't get involved in that stuff. There's a used to know an elder that uh, he would when somebody would say they would try to justify some behavior that's not justifiable, and his analogy was a nasty one. But he'd say, "So would you like a little bit of poop in your brownies? Just a little, just a small amount, because it's okay. Just a little bit of contamination. Would that bother you if it's only a small amount? Don't Christians let yourself be impure, not even a fraction. Don't allow it into your life. And then covetousness. We're not supposed to be like that, but we often are. Have you noticed that neighbors try to keep up with neighbors? So-and-so got a new car. We should get a new car. So-and-so got a boat. We should get a boat. None of these things are supposed to be named among you, as is proper among Christians. And he's not done He's going to keep going with some more exclamations on the behaviors we should not be having in our lives. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now for a moment I want you to pay attention to the let there be thanksgiving. We should focus on being grateful for God's blessings because His blessings are so abundant and we could have none, but He chooses to give us so much. Think about how worse your life could be if you didn't have the blessings that God gives you. But now let's back up and catch the other behaviors He's addressing here. Where it says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place. They don't belong in the Christian life at all. But every now and then, Christians will get together, and because on the spiritual ladder, as they are climbing, they think it's okay to let something slip out, or not even that, maybe even just kind of test the waters and start talking in such a way that Christians shouldn't. And if the others are on the same lower spiritual level, they all think it's fine. Let me tell you, we made it clear, we're not supposed to be judgmental. We're not supposed to be extra critical of those who used to, we used to be like them. We're not supposed to. In fact, God is the ultimate judge of our souls. And as a Christian, 
and you slip up in your foul language, I'm not going to judge your soul. I'm not going to determine you're going to hell because you talk like that. You just need to grow in your spiritual faith. I know that when you do that. It's like, that doesn't belong in the Christian life. But I, as I was in Bible college, was introduced to a theology that I had not heard before, but I've heard it a bunch since. People that, people that were going into pastoral ministry thought that it was okay to use foul language because it, as long as it doesn't offend anyone, then it's fine. If everybody in the room's okay with it, then it's fine. We've had Christian actors and actresses who justify their foul language in common conversation because, hey, um, as long as it doesn't offend the people that I'm around, it's fine. And so let me tell you, as a, just as a Christian man, if I hear another man, Christian or not, has nothing to do with judging a person's soul, has nothing to do with determining, oh, they shouldn't be doing that because Christians don't do that, uh, they need to grow up spiritually. As If I hear another man using foul language, I'm taken back to fifth grade. And when I was in the fifth grade, I, I must admit, I had a foul mouth. I heard it from my parents. I heard it from a lot of friends. I'd seen it on the movies that I had watched. And I probably had one of the foulest of fifth grade kids in my school. And I, rem I was always in trouble. Uh, but I remember sitting across the desk. One of the times I wasn't in trouble, I was at my regular desk. And there was um, a girl that sat right across from me. Her name was Tatiana Bales. My name starts with Adams. Her name starts with A because it's Adams. Her last name is B. So we were always close together in proximity when we had the same classes. I grew up with her. And she was a nice girl that didn't talk much. But I thought she was nice. Until one day when the teacher was doing her thing and I wasn't paying attention, and I let out a string of foul words, and she said in front of my friends, why do you talk like that? You sound so stupid. And if she was a boy, I would have taken care of that on the playground because I would, I would, nobody's going to talk to me like that. Well... But the thing is, she's a nice person, and I thought about it. And I had not made a commitment to Christ. I, I didn't have a, a faith in Christ. But at that particular time, it made sense. I started thinking about it. Because in my mind, when I heard a girl talk and say, like, you know, like, you know, like, you know, over and over and over again, that sounds stupid. You, you know, improve your vocabulary. Choose some more words. Don't keep repeating the same ones. And there I was repeating the same words. I, I did sound stupid. I don't need these words. She said more things like you could express yourself better and things like that. And I thought, she's really making me sound stupid. No, no, I'm making me sound stupid. When I hear another man say foul words today, I, I know, I've read the articles you've probably read that some people say those who cuss more there's show higher levels of intelligence. Have you, have you seen these articles? There's articles out there that say that. But I also know Google doesn't know much, and neither does a whole lot, do a whole lot of other people who have higher degrees uh, because I, have, I know people who have paid other people to take their tests for them oh, yeah. and get their higher degrees. 
<clears throat> and then they end up at the end of it, at the end of it all, they've got a couple of degrees, and they still have the beliefs that they entered the university or college system with. They've not changed their mind. And they make up stuff as they go, and they write it when they put their degree titles after their name, and it ends up on Google. And you think that they're credible. If you repeat any word over and over and over and over again, it's a sign of a limited vocabulary. I don't care who you are, it's pretty easy to figure out. And if you keep repeating those foul words over and over and over again, you obviously struggle in expressing yourself, which is not a sign of intelligence. Just think about it. So as, a, as simply a man, listening to another man talk like that, this makes, it's just clear to me, he struggles with communicating and he needs to improve his vocabulary. You want to be a better man, start reading some books and improve your vocabulary. Just saying. That has nothing to do with my faith. It's just common sense. But here's what happens, Christians. Some of us get in this, we get in this thing, we hang out together, and I, I don't think it's happening in this church, so don't think I'm picking on anybody. But we get together, and one of us thinks it's okay to say a little cuss word. It just comes out. What happens is, even though the peers, your Christian peers, might treat you, might feel like, ah, ah, he's one of me, you know, ah, he's like me, I do that too. The respect they had for you as a Christian drops several notches when they see you behave like that, whether it's cussing or other, any other type of misbehavior that misrepresents Christianity. It does not help your ability to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I can tell you that from personal experiencing and counseling a lot of people. It does not help you. Whether you're a man or a woman, using foul language as a Christian is not helpful and not beneficial. Let me show you these other passages. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to show you this in the New King James Version. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now, how about that? Let me give it to you in the New Living Translation. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. And the way the ESV, the one that I use all the time, says it, it uses the, the words obscene talk. Get filthy language, obscene talk, dirty language out of your lives, Christians. It's not okay. And even if it doesn't offend anyone else that you're around, it bothers God. He says, don't even have it in your life. And some of us, Think it's okay to read romance novels that have it throughout, or magazines, or inundate ourselves with movies or songs or whatever it is we do. I'm telling you, if you have that going into your head, it's going to slip out of your mouth. And Christians, it doesn't belong. That's why it doesn't say just get rid of it from your speech, get rid of it from your lives. Okay, moving on. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, exclamation point right here, look at this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, I told you, it's not just the preacher. 
Paul's circling back around and bringing it up again. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is, a co- is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That is a bad place to be, Christians. Let me give you this. Remember back in 1 Peter? I'll read this again to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we're told that our hope is in heaven, our inheritance is in heaven, yet if you practice these behaviors, you have no inheritance. Christians, we want to live with hope, then we have to behave accordingly. Did we lose my mic altogether? Yeah, it's, it's gone. That's a dead battery. That's what that is. I'll just be louder. How's that? All right. <laughs> as long as we don't have that feeling that somebody's getting electrocuted, that sound there. All right, let's move on to verse 6. And we'll read all the way to verse 10. Let no one deceive you. Why in the world would he have to say, let no one deceive you with empty words? For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. But he begins with, let no one deceive you with empty words. Why would he have to put this in the middle of this discussion about all these behaviors we're supposed to have? Why would he have to say that? Because there are people that will try to justify improper behavior. I'm a Christian and I do it. It's okay. Just because you do something doesn't mean it's okay. Christians, we have a standard that we're given right here in God's Word, and we're just going through some of them today in a small section. He expects us to live differently. We are supposed to brighten the world by our presence because our behavior is right. The world is a better place with more Christians in it. Think about it. What would it be like if Every interaction, when we leave here today, if some of us go to a store, some of us go to a restaurant, some of, whatever we do, or when we go to school tomorrow, those of us who do that, we go to work, what would it be like if every interaction was with Christians? That'd be, that'd be cool. Or if most interactions were with Christians, that'd be awesome. Make your evangelism harder because you struggle to find Christians, but the world is a better place with more Christians. That's why it talks about we're supposed to be the light in the world. And we represent this light that brightens everything by behaving properly. Verse 11 and following, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
And that circles back around, if you don't mind, go back to that sexual thing. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now the cool thing about this is here we have a section in the Bible where typically when I'm preaching, I like to throw up there the Scripture passages. Now I find a whole bunch in Isaiah that are similar to this. But I also found a lot of different commentaries that say different things. And I'm going to give you one right now. This one is from Ellicott's commentary for English readers. And he says, Hence we are driven to conclude that the quotation is not from Holy Scripture, yet the very form shows that it is from something well known. There's a lot of other commentators that say other things. In fact, Barnes says that it fits Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3. And this is that passage. Now, yeah, I'm going to give it to you now. Got to turn the page. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nation, nation, <laughs> nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. That's not precise, but it's close. It's very close. The same concepts are there. So I think I'll go with Barnes on this one. That reference is to Isaiah 60 verses 1 through 3. Now look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. I love this passage, and I like it in a couple of other translations. Let me give you the NIV. Making the most, this is just verse 16, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. And here it is in the New American Standard Bible. I like this wording, which is a little bit more accurate. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The main concept is make the most of every opportunity. That's one of those things. Once you spend time, it's gone. Once the opportunity is there, you have to take advantage of it because you may not get another. So your behavior needs to align with God's will. It pleases the Lord for you to shine his light in this dark world by behaving properly, walking in a way that's pleasing to him, walking in wisdom, walking in love. I love the way this, this feels. As we go through this, it almost feels like Paul has slipped into this role as he's incarcerated in pastoring the Ephesian Christians. You feel that? He's like he's putting his arm around some people who need a talk. Look, here's how you live to please the Lord. And he's given it to us very clearly. Here's verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And there's countless books that have been written on this subject. 
Because the question comes up, okay, but how do you know? Because it's not like the Lord is going to send you an email. Like you just, you have this prayer like, God, what am I supposed to do? And then you go home and there's an email directly from God. Here is precisely what you're supposed to do. It's not there. I mean, you have a, uh, an adult child who just can't seem to figure life out. And it's like, am I supposed to help them? Or this time, am I supposed to let them learn a lesson? God, I don't, I don't know what you want me to do. You have a situation that you've got to deal with at work. It might cause you your job. What am I supposed to do? You're not going to get that email directly from God. How am I supposed to know the will of God? There's so many books out there you could get to know, to, that tell us, thick books even, how to know the will of God. Because you've got a passage like this and it says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How am I supposed to know? I want an email or a text or a phone call. I, I, want, I want a sign. You know, we want something. Keep praying. We don't hear the answer. Romans 12, 1 and 2 helps us out. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to know what God's will is? Live in such a way that you please Him. Don't be like the world. Live to please the Lord, and you will know His will. He will let you know. That's what my Bible says. That's what your Bible says. If you live in such a way that pleases Him, you worship Him with your life. You'll know. You'll know. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> we just stumbled into something. We just stumbled into a controversial subject. And I don't know if you've heard of being drunk in the Spirit, but this is a very trendy and popular thing in many churches, usually charismatic churches. But getting drunk in the Spirit is, has been written about. It's not written about as much as it is taught physically in person in charismatic type congregations. And when I say the phrase charismatic, I don't mean energetic. I'm talking about a classification of particular churches that have an overemphasis of sensationalism. That's what I'm talking about. That would include Churches named such as Pentecostal, which, by the way, if you want to focus on the Pentecostal church, they've probably got a whole lot more right than they do wrong. So please don't think I'm trying to be insulting to the Pentecostal church because they, they do a lot of things we can learn from. And that would include the Assemblies of God, Foursquare Gospel, and there's, there's plenty of others. But we need to talk about this. This getting drunk in the spirit, if it hasn't come up, it's going to come up to you. And in a way, it's much like this tongue-speaking thing. People will bring it up like, okay, so when you spiritually advance, you'll get drunk in the Spirit. In fact, I found an article online. You can look it up. It's, look at this, holy intoxication, what it means to be drunk in the Spirit. 
This guy's last name is Chan. It's not the one you know. But he, he writes about this, and he, he actually is compelling people who would completely disagree with getting drunk in the spirit. So he's writing this, and he's trying to compel people to believe in getting drunk in the spirit who don't believe. And he, he, I encourage you to read this article because I read it, and at the end of it all, I'm looking for his evidence. He tries to argue. He tries to use scripture, and it falls flat because there is no scripture that supports this teaching. It's, it's really a gargantuan leap of blind faith to think this. But I will go ahead and give you some uh, passages shortly. Now, this idea, say where it says, be filled with the Spirit. It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. People think that this is teaching to get drunk in the Spirit. It doesn't say that. It's given us a contrast. I don't know if you understand the English language very well, but that word but is there for contrast. It's not saying be like this. It's saying do something differently. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But here's the other thing. It's like an antithetical position. Be filled with the Spirit. Because here's what happens. When you consume alcohol to the point where your judgment is clouded, you are now drunk. And when your judgment is clouded, that necessarily means your brain is not firing properly because you consumed something that did that to your body. Same thing with drugs. You take something that prohibits you from thinking clearly, this is not pleasing to the Lord. Don't do that. So, in, in, so basically, if you're getting drunk with wine, you are actually emptying out your thinking. You can't behave like God wants you if you're going to be shutting down your brain's functionality. So don't do that. Don't get drunk with wine. But here's the antithetical thought. Instead of emptying your mind with, the, with its capabilities, of its capabilities, fill it with the Spirit. You want to think in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Then let your mind be filled with the Spirit. Let your body be filled with the Spirit. If you want to please Him, then let Him rule in your life. Let the power and glory of God come out in your actions. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. But when people say get drunk in the Spirit, oftentimes what they describe is behaviors, like this in this article, this guy will describe the behaviors. People that get in drunk in the spirit, or that are getting drunk in the spirit, will bust out into uncontrollable laughter and they can't stop, and that is drunk in the spirit. Or they will fall on the floor and wallow around, being slain by the spirit and drunk in the spirit. Um, basically, the concept is when you are drunk in the spirit, you lose control. That's the idea. Has anybody here heard of this kind of teaching before? Raise your hand if you've heard it. Okay, most of us. All right, let me show you some other passages. First of all, a parallel passage right out of one of uh, the, was one of the books this church is studying right now, Galatians. Look at this, you'll see it pop up behind me. Chapter 5, verses 19 and following. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, there you go again. 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want you to notice a couple of things here, though. The main thing is sensuality. We are not supposed to get so caught up in pleasing ourselves. Oh my goodness, I get so elated. And that's what we follow, that we that becomes what we are focused on. Now he's particularly talking about self-satisfying bad things, but I'm suggesting to you that there are people who think that advancing spirituality is getting to a point where you get an elated feeling. That's, that's your idea. There, this is a, there's a bunch of people that think this way, not just in charismatic churches. But in order for me to really have church, i got to have this feeling that feels so good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I had church. I felt it. And that's what it becomes all about. Instead of making sure God feels good, it's all about how I feel. And if I don't feel good when I leave, then I didn't have church. Maybe you've heard people talk like this. Maybe it's the songs. When I sing those new songs, I just don't feel good. Well, how does God feel? Does he like those words? <clears throat> it's not about how you feel. It's about how God feels. We're supposed to try to please him. So notice that word sensuality there. Let's continue reading with the next section there in Galatians 5. This will sound familiar to you. Verse 22 to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. We're going through the list of the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things you can tell Christians that they're Christians. You can tell the people that are Christians by the fruit they produce. Remember that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You know these. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I wanted you to notice that one there. Self-control. Well, I'll read the rest of it. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There we are again. So our sensual desires, our passions and desires, those are put aside because we are trying to please the Lord, and it should be demonstrated by the fruit we produce as the Holy Spirit is in us. It produces these fruits. Don't neglect the one that's called self-control. Because when I have another Christian tell me that if you want to really advance spiritually, you have to lose control. Well, my Bible and your Bible says self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So no thank you. I will let God guide me and have self-control by the power of His Spirit. Are you with me on this? It makes sense. Just follow the Bible. We don't have to make up our own practices. It's right here. Okay. We'll move on in our text. Ephesians chapter 5, picking up with verse 18. Uh, we'll pick up with verse 19. We already read 18. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's one of those things that definitely highlights us as, as who we are. It, it's what we do. Christians, we sing to the Lord. It's one of the things that we love to do. We can't really have the kind of worship and fellowship that God wants unless we do these kinds of things. Now, can you worship God without singing? Yes. But 
it really seems to put together a nice whole package when we are doing these things. But I, I used to get judgmental. Confession time. I've already badmouthed myself enough when I was younger how bad I was. But I'll confess to you that as a preacher, for a while it bothered me because some of our older hymns, which I love our older hymns, don't get me wrong, but some of our older hymns were like sermons. And it bothered me because I, I, I was the preacher in the family, and every time we got together, they want me to pray, and they want to do like a preacher's prayer that we're used to, where you have a whole sermon in the prayer. The food's getting cold. Could you go ahead and say, Amen? And I mean, that's what they expect. So I, I thought, I don't, that's not what Jesus said. Don't think you'll be heard for your many words. The point of the prayer is the point of the prayer, not to impress people. You know, don't think you'll be, you know, don't say your prayers to be heard by men or you'll receive your reward in full. <laughs> so I, I didn't want to have a sermon and a prayer, so I worked on that. And then, then it spilled over into my theology in the songs we're singing. Why are we singing songs that are preaching to other people? I want to sing songs to worship the Lord. And I fell into that category of people that think that, that the only kind of songs we should be singing are these songs that just have words of praise to the Lord, not songs that are instructing my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is so wrong. I was so wrong. When I happened to be, it wasn't even a study. I was just doing a devotional reading. I was just reading through, and I came across our passage right here, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Don't miss that chunk right there. We are supposed to address each other with these songs. So I had to repent. I had to change my mind. I had to change my theology. There I was being critical of songs that I thought just didn't fit into my little idea of what we should be doing. And the reality is those songs were perfectly in line with Scripture. Let's read on. The final part of our text, verses 20 and 21, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love that whole, the way he packages that whole thing, that whole into it there, being thankful always for everything to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that last little piece, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Isn't that interesting? One of the ways that we revere Christ is submitting to one another. Remember when I talked about a church dividing over the color of the carpet? People getting selfish? You see, the thing is, we are supposed to have selflessness for Christ. And when I say something like that, just the word selflessness, some people, maybe not here in this room, but some people automatically hear selfishness because it's so uncommon to talk about selflessness. We are supposed to have selflessness for Christ. 
most of us would like to be esteemed by others. We've talked about, last week I talked about how we can encourage each other. Got to say seven positive things for every negative thing they've said in order to get them above level. Most of us, we love being around people that are like that. People that build us up, we want to be around them. Tell you something else, we also love being around selfless people. People who aren't always trying to get everything their way. In fact, they prefer if you have it your way. Christians, this is us. We are supposed to be selfless. Yeah, but pastor, if I do that, I'm going to get run over a lot. Yeah, just like Jesus, right? Mm. How about that? I don't know if, you've, if you're catching this, but let me, let me tell you. God is setting us up. And if you want to be ready, you need to be selfless. Have selflessness for Christ.